And the question is, if we really believe that accepting someone is the only way to change, what do we do with that? Because can you accept the fact that this person has been killing people so brutally and murderingly and disgustingly? Like, no, you can't accept that. But what can you accept? Uh, the loneliness. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life I've been feeling starstruck Seeing human love thrive in this really long dust Guess it's really all love Seven billion of us And I read the headlines Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life It's part luck, surveillance Corn shuck the conscience Hot sauce, blood diamonds Everybody pitching in for red with silence We already hit up that Welcome back to The Principles of Peacemaking um, So... This is part two of Quinn's episode, Acceptance is a Catalyst for Change. Um, And before we get started with this, I wanted to note, so uh, today is actually Saturday, August 5th, which is the launch date of the last episode of the season, um, or the last story of the season. So over the course of the next couple of months, you're going to be hearing us release these part twos to the episodes. And this is going to be Michael and I having a conversation about the principle. Uh, What we're going to do in each of these episodes is we're going to tell a personal story related to the principle. We're going to tell another story, um, a kind of external story related to the principle. And we're going to talk about it. Um, And then at the end of the episode, we're going to hear from the the guest of the episode. So in this case, Quinn, a little bit of an update on, you know, what's going on, how he feels about the principle now. Uh, we've recorded the episodes over the course of the past three years. So the first episodes were recorded, I think the first one was recorded in June of 2020. And so we have, in some cases, three years of life to kind of catch up on. Uh, so all of that will be included in these part two episodes. And this is our first one. So so Quinn's principle was acceptance is a catalyst for change. Do you want to explain a little bit, Michael, how we got to this principle? Yeah. So, I mean, when we say acceptance is a catalyst for change, you know, Quinn is telling the story about not being where he wants to be in life. And one of those big things was that he was lonely. He didn't have the life that he was trying to build for himself. But in feeling lonely, he chose to be alone as the change element. Similarly, when he encounters the robbers, he's been hurt and he chooses to acknowledge their hurt. So he, it, I almost think of it as... If you're in the north, you're taught that when you're driving on ice and your car starts to swerve off the path, you want to steer in to the swerve because that actually gives you a little bit more control over what's happening. When Quinn was had all these material possessions around him, he could steer away from the loneliness by distracting, but it wasn't going to change the core reason that he was alone. By like diving into the aloneness, he had actually a little, a little bit more control and agency in his aloneness. And same with, you know, the robbers. He could have chosen to be angry and that would have avoided the fact that he was so, you know, hurt. Do you know there, there was a cost in terms of sense of safety and literal cost and, you know, all these things that happened. And he actually chose to like steer into the ways that the robbers were hurt. And that gave him access to a totally different feeling, which was compassion and forgiveness and grace and acceptance and all these things. That's why I really like 
this principle. One of the places that I see this most in my life is that I've been a runner for the last almost 20 years. And for the first maybe 10 of those years, running was really hard and painful for me. And I was doing it partially because I wanted to be faster. I wanted to be successful at running. I wanted to change how my body looked. Uh, it was a lot of not accepting who I was and where I was at. And I actually strongly believe, given where I am now, that, you know, we always praise exercise as a healthy thing you can do for yourself. I strongly believe that if you are doing it out of dislike for yourself, or if you're doing it because it's causing you pain, exercise can be a form of self-harm just as much as anything else can. You know, this came to a head for me when I was running with one of my best friends. We ran throughout high school together. Uh, he was way faster than I was. He was just built differently. He was taller. He was built more lean and muscular and, and such. And for like, he understood that all he wanted to do is run and have fun together. But whenever we would pass our coach, our coach knew he had way more potential than I did for running. And so he'd yell at him. He'd be like, what are you doing? Nothing. And then he'd like call to me and I was running right next to him. Good job, Michael. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, <laughs> you know, criticizing my friend for doing the exact same thing that I was doing and then praising me for it. And that I kind of internalized that and in college ended up competing with this friend and competing with myself. I didn't mean to, but I was kind of I wanted to be running with him and I wanted to be running at his pace and I wanted that pace to be getting faster. And that led to some pretty significant stress injuries. I remember doing this run with this friend at like five in the morning, miserable because I never want to get up at five to run. And halfway through the run, we stopped for a drink and I realized that my legs were throbbing with pain uh, and I couldn't run the rest of the way back. We had to get picked up and turned out I had stress injuries in both tibias and both femurs and I, I couldn't run for six months or so. And I realized at some point after that, as I was relearning to run in a way that wasn't going to let that happen again, that running is about accepting in order to change because you have to run as slow as you run. If you run any faster than that, you're going to burn out before you're done and you're not going to do it tomorrow. If you run too fast and keep doing it and somehow don't burn out, you're going to get stress injuries and you're going to stop. And in both of those instances, you don't get any faster. <laughs> if you run as slow as you need to run, it's pleasant, it's fine. And by doing that, you get faster because you finish your run, you do it tomorrow, and you can keep doing it sustainably for the rest of your life. So I just kind of love that as a... a example of I accept exactly where I am in terms of needing to run and then that changes not because I'm trying to change that but because I'm accepting it I like a lot of things about that one is um this like pacing kind of element because so when I think about this principle acceptance is a catalyst for change I'm really thinking more about like a moment of acceptance kind of this and in the stories I'm going to tell you'll kind of hear that of like you're in one kind of state and then you make a decision you change and then now you're ready for change whereas the way that you're describing it um, with this running thing is that it's this kind of constant thing like you're constantly recalibrating like pacing is like constantly thinking about you know how fast can i run in this moment and it's always like 
accepting who you are and like steering into kind of following the the like path that is set by yourself and your circumstances uh, which i just i really like that yeah. that's really cool it, it this gets at some of the other podcasts that we can talk to but i'm thinking about tracy saying that peacemaking is cyclical you know it's not i accept it and now i've accepted it it's like i have to choose to accept this with every step yeah that's really really cool The story that I thought about for my personal life is an interesting story to me. It's like one of my, like, I almost think of it as like a, everything about like, like super villain origin stories, like how the person became who they are. Um, I say super villains, I guess super, your heroes also have origin stories, but I think super villains have cooler ones. Um, but I am showing Michael right now this picture to give him a uh, visual of, um, this is me, uh, when I was, I think I was 15 at the time. I think this is me at 15. Which is approximately the age I met you at. Yeah, that's interesting. It's been about exactly a year before we met. Um, we met at a visiting weekend in college. Um, so I took a gap year. So a year before that was my senior year of high school. And I was, I graduated really young, which I'll talk about in a second. It kind of plays into the story a bit, but, um, I was 15 years old, and this picture is me at a speech and debate tournament. So quick backstory on me. I was homeschooled, and I grew up in in Atlanta, um, very much in the Bible Belt, very like deeply kind of like evangelical Christian community. So basically everything I did, everything I was part of at the time was like Christian. So this was, um, the organization was called NCFCA, which stood for National Christian Forensics and Communications Association. Um, and it's basically just a speech and debate organization. They have like thousands and thousands of kids doing these tournaments throughout the country. Um, and so the way that the tournaments work is that you have qualifiers that are your kind of like, I guess, within your state maybe. And then I think regionals are a broader like region of the country. And then you have nationals. Basically, you have to get a certain number of, um, you know, a qualifying point or kind of rank a certain level in each tournament to, to move on to the next one. Um, so um, I had gone to, this is now my seventh of these tournaments and it was my last one because I was graduating and I was the only person in our group. Um, we had like a group of like probably like 10 to 15 people who would go to these tournaments. Um, and I was the only person who had never passed the qualifiers and gone to regionals Um I don't know, it seemed like that was kind of a, a relatively easy thing to do, especially within like seven tournaments over four years that I had been in, and I just never like qualified for anything. Um, so everybody else would go to regionals. I'd go to regionals because I'd be like going with my brothers who would, you know, generally qualify or like other people, uh, but I never could. Like I was just never good enough. Um, and so this was my last tournament, and I had a debate partner, and my debate partner, he was very good. He, I think, made it all the way to nationals his first time, which is the prior uh, year. Um, he had joined kind of late. He was great. I was less great. I remember the, you know, at the end of the tournament, everybody's kind of standing in the auditorium and listening to hear who qualifies and who doesn't. And I remember just like sitting there and just hoping, wishing that like, you know, this is my last chance that like maybe I would go to regionals. Um, and then they call the names, they call, you know, all the, the like qualifiers and we did not qualify. At the moment that like the announcement happened, my partner as a kind of a knee jerk reaction, he said it was Obasi's fault. Um, 
which was like fascinating because I mean it was true. And so I actually like you know, it, it like it stung a little bit, but also I didn't really blame him because it I mean I knew it was kind of a knee-jerk reaction. He was like, you know, more accustomed to winning. I was accustomed to losing, you know, and he was also like probably fifteen at the time, so he was you know, this was hard for him and that was what came out and I know he didn't mean it in any kind of way. But it was, you know, it was it was just kind of he knew it was true, I knew it was true, everybody knew it was true that like I was like less of a good uh like communicator, less of a good speaker than he was. That night we went back to the hotel that we were staying at for the tournament and um I couldn't sleep. Um and it was just, you know, I was just thinking about how I had lost all of these tournaments um and just how you know that was my last chance and you know it just kind of was gnawing at me and so then I don't know how like what the series of thoughts that went on in my mind were but I eventually decided to write a letter to the organizers of the event um and it was like an interesting thing too because like I, I think I blamed a little bit the organizers of the event for this too because um another like aspect of the whole thing was everything just felt you know, lightly racialized, like our, our group. So there'd be like, you know, probably like 15 black people at this, at each tournament with like, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of like participants, um, almost entirely, right. It'd be like 15 black people and like 14 of them would be like our group. Um, there was just like one other girl who was black, who was actually adopted into a white family, which is great. Like we really loved her, but, uh, but it was like, it was, everything was just so interesting. And so like, you know, me performing, um, at this place, like I, it, everything just felt like, I don't know. So there was just kind of like a lot of feelings going on. Um, but the letter that I wrote ended up being really interesting. Like I actually have it here and I'm going to read it and it's a little bit long, but I think it's like, it's actually just really fascinating to me and really is the, you know, acceptance is a catalyst for change moment um, in this story. And I think was really a turning point for me in just my life and attitude about life was this letter, writing this letter. And so I'm going to read it. Um, yeah, so I, I have it pulled up here and it says, um, hello, Mrs. Blank. This is the, the like one person whose email address I had um, from the like organizers. And I asked at the end of the letter actually to forward it to the other organizers. But I said, um, this is Obasi Shaw. You may not know me or remember me. That's because I've never been one of those big names that you hear about in NCFCA. In fact, I've never even broken to regionals. That's okay. The reason I'm writing you today is because it is my last year. In fact, Noonan was my very last tournament. It's been four years, seven qualifiers, and seven speeches, not including impromptu and debate. In fact, I had actually been attending these tournaments for two years before I was old enough to complete to compete to support my brothers and the others in my club. I admit that I have never been the best speaker. I started out too shy, and although I overcame that, my blocking in both platform speeches and in terps has been somewhat lacking. I understand why I've lost repeatedly, and I'm not bitter. I'm writing to you today to explain that to you. Um, and I'll note before I go on, um, this, like for those who might be triggered by this, this is a highly evangelical, um, like a letter because it's a highly evangelical Obasi. Um, so, there's going to be a lot of God coming up. Um, I'm not bitter. I'm writing today to explain that to you. I have always been prone to saying that losing is better than winning because it is a learning experience, but I've never understood this so vitally until now. In all these years, God never let me break to regionals. He withheld that from me, even in cases when everyone who heard my speech said that I should have. 
In these cases, I do not blame myself. I do not blame the judges. I don't even blame the faculty. No, I blame God. But not in a bad way. No, God gave me the gift of losing speech tournaments because he wanted me to be able to see something that is very hard for winners to understand. You see, last night when debate octas were called and my TP partner and I did not make it, he immediately said it was Obasi's fault. Now, I don't blame him and I hope you don't either. I don't blame him because it was merely a shock reaction he will probably apologize for it in the near future. I don't blame him because it very well might have been my fault. But the main reason why I don't blame him is because he is a winner. He does not yet know what it is to lose. In fact, he seems a bit puzzled that I'm so contented with my losses. Last year was his first year in speech, and he took his persuasive to nationals. But this time, he lost. And why? Because of me. Because God had already written in his plan that I do not win in NCFCA. My partner merely got caught between me and God. Because God was trying to tell me something. When I was a small child, I was a sore loser, but I matured in that respect long ago. I've never been upset about my NCFCA failures. I've always trusted that God's will was in place. There must be winners and there must be losers. Last year in one of the tournaments, in one of my speeches, the ballots didn't seem to add up. It seemed to my mother and I that with those rankings, I should have advanced. At the Jonesboro tournament this year, my partner and I went 3-3. But one of our losses was the one that was very clearly a win to us. We were affirmative and our case was hardly contested. These two failures happened because God did not want me to win. As I look around in this tournament, I can honestly say that I would not have given up this experience if I could have. I met some great people, had some great experiences, and watched some great speeches. Though I might have thought I did, I never came here to win. No, God was trying to teach me something. I have learned from these tournaments that I am not a speaker and never was a speaker. I am more of a writer. That is not my fault. In fact, that is why I am writing you this letter and not speaking it. This is my last year because I'm a senior this year. I started competing at 12 and graduating at 15. Maybe had I gone on till 17 or 18 years old, I would have broken to regionals. Maybe I never got a fair chance, but I don't think so. Rather, I think God was trying to tell me something. I think God was trying to tell me that I don't have to break to regionals. God was saying that I don't have to become some oratorical legend. Nobody has to know my name. Because I know my name. I know who I am, and I know who I am with or without a medal or the recognition of others. But more importantly, because God knows my name. And God knows my name. Psalm 8.4 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What I have learned that is hard for a winner to learn is that when there is no congratulation, when there is no pat on the back, God can still say, well done, my good and faithful servant. It's been a good run, and I thank you very much for all that you do, Obasi Shah. Um, So that was um, the letter I wrote. You know, I was just like dealing with a lot of emotions. I was a kid. I was struggling. And... What I realized in that moment was that what gave me the most peace and, like, what allowed me to, like, you know, move positively on from that experience was accepting that it's okay if I don't win these tournaments. Um, And so then, like, after having written that letter, I felt so much better. And it was like, not only was I, you know, able to not be sad, but I was also just able to, like, you know, love the person that I was. I was able to love the, like, the loser that I was. Like, I felt like this was, you know, an experience that gave me something different from what I would have gotten from being a winner, um, which I thought was really cool. And then um, thinking about, too, like, acceptance of the catalyst for change, um, I think that this 
what what that did for me too was that it didn't make me a good speaker um but what it did do was i think it made me a more confident speaker in that like i was okay with not being a good speaker like i knew that it was it was fine it was okay like if i go and give a speech and i like you know get flustered or like say um too much or whatever um it doesn't matter because like i've done that before i've done that a lot and the person that i am is still the person that i really like you know like and respect and want to see succeed um in the ways that matter um so that was my story about acceptance being a catalyst for change um i've been talking a lot let's move on to your story um your second story which is not about you but is a story that you like have found or yeah i mean so it's it's kind of a story it's kind of uh psychology theories nerd rant um (laughs) but you know when we say acceptance is a catalyst for change it really makes me think about carl rogers who is the the father of humanistic person-centered psychology psychology is a really really young field compared to other sciences and social sciences And it started as a medical thing. So thinking about people the way we think about illness, which is you have a problem inside yourself and let's figure out how to fix it. That's still a really prominent way of thinking about psychology. That's what we mean when we say mental illness. But Carl Rogers came from a totally different field and basically said, Actually, I think people know how to cure themselves, and the problem isn't inside of them. The problem is that they're hiding what's inside of them. Uh, so Carl Rogers talks about the authentic self and the ideal self, and if the authentic self is who you are, if you accept who you are and show that person. The ideal self is the person you think everyone else expects you to be, and the definition of suffering and conflict that we can solve in therapy is creating congruence between the selves, congruence of the self. His quote that I love is actually really, really similar to this principle of peacemaking, uh, which is that the curious paradox is that only when I accept myself exactly as I am, that is when I can change. And his form of therapy is, I mean, it often gets simplified. I'm going to do that now, which is basically really, really following closely what the person is saying and showing what we call unconditional positive regard, which is whatever you have to show me, I'm going to demonstrate to you that that is okay. I'm trying to prove to you that you can accept your authentic self and that people will be okay with that. Not all people, but that I can, and so other people can, and then the idea is I am in less conflict inside of myself, And I will start looking for relationships elsewhere because I've experienced one. I know what it feels like that accept my authentic self or celebrate my authentic self. There's a lot of research that shows not just that that works, but that nothing works if you don't do that. So we now kind of talk about common factors research. What is the thing that has to be true or that is true of any effective therapy, no matter how you're thinking about it, what model, what theory you're using. Um, and those common factors are 
the relationship between the therapist and the client and the client feeling like the therapist is on your side and accepting them and, you know, all that Rogerian stuff. That was really Rogers who kind of started really saying that. It feels so basic now. And I think our world has actually changed because of Rogers in a lot of ways. Psychology has kind of started to go in that direction and so has the rest of the world. So... That's basically my story. That's basically my theoretical rant. But I feel like, you know, this principle we came to is is kind of a fundament of therapy and psychology and emotional healing. Uh, so I kind of like that. Yeah, I really like that, too. I have, I have like a thought and a question. My question here is like, and it's a question for this, like this story rant, like in particular, but it's also more broadly um, something that I've been trying to understand about this principle is what change is acceptance a catalyst for? Because I think the critique of this thought is like, well, if I accept myself or if I accept this other person, then they're not going to change because I need them to be something else. I don't need them as they are right now, or I need myself to be something else. So like, is it okay to still, when trying to accept somebody, want a particular change from them? And what sorts of change does acceptance like move you towards? And what sorts of change are just change that you have to give up on? That's my question. Right. Uh, I'll give one more anecdote that I heard recently in a training that I was doing, that I was going through. I was being trained. Uh, someone was talking about a serial murderer. This was a person who killed a lot of people. And would do really disturbing things that I won't go into with these people, but it included either keeping someone around before killing them or keeping the dead body around afterwards. And he explained at one point that he felt so incredibly lonely that having the dead body around helped him feel like he was with someone or having someone around who knew they were going to die helped him feel like he was going to be with someone. And the question is, if we really believe that accepting someone is the only way to change, what do we do with that? Because can you accept the fact that this person has been killing people so brutally and murderingly and disgustingly? Like, no, you can't accept that. But what can you accept? Uh, the loneliness. What you might say to this person who just said that is, it sounds like you have felt so incredibly alone. I can't imagine how hard that must have been for you. And what you're doing in that moment is authentically connecting with them. You know what it, we all know what it means to feel alone. We can all empathize with that. We all know that that is a real, genuine, good human emotion. And I've connected with them. If if he's literally telling me that the loneliness is part of the thing that is driving to this horrible outcome, then by accepting his loneliness without necessarily accepting his behavior, I've made him slightly less alone. And so I might actually have changed the behavior by accepting that part of him, that loneliness. So kind of radical yeah. example that a lot of people, even therapists, get really, really uncomfortable with. Like, I'm not sure I even want to do that. Uh, I actually would totally do that. <laughs> would would connect around the loneliness uh, because I believe that that works. Yeah, and I think that, like, to your point, it may be the 
only thing that can be done. Like, like you, as you were saying that this is like a fundamental part of therapy that like, if you want to change somebody, you have to make that connection with them. So like your options are either you find a way to congruently accept them or they continue to be the person that they are and like do the harm that they're doing. And so with that kind of like, um, I think that just even from a pragmatic perspective, it's like, if we want the world to be a better place, then maybe we need to be more willing to empathize with people who, um, who we see as kind of beyond the pale. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's kind of a, we can't afford not to connect with someone as a human because it's the only way. Um, my story, um, is, I'm trying to figure out how to segue from serial killers to my story, but I don't think that there's a a great (laughs) segue there. Um, but my story is about Kendrick Lamar. Um, and I have talked to you, Michael, about this before, um, but I'm going to go into it again. Um, this is Kendrick Lamar's latest album came out last year. It's called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. Um, and I think it's a great example of this. I, I think it deals with like all, all of these things we've been talking about. Um, if you, you're not familiar with Kendrick Lamar, um, he is potentially the best rapper of all time. He is the only rapper to have won a Pulitzer Prize in music and actually the only musician who's not a classical or jazz musician to have won the Pulitzer Prize in music um, because the quality and the literary nature of his music um, is just kind of un- unparalleled. Um, that came out in his album, Tip a Butterfly. That was kind of the, in my opinion, his best album. Of course, different people have different opinions, but I think that it was really Tip a Butterfly that like he got the Pulitzer Prize for his next album. Um, but I think it was, you know, one of those things where it takes some time for the people to catch up, the accolades to come. And so they didn't give it to him on his first one. They gave it to him on his next one. But so what's interesting is that, so he has had now four studio albums. The first three were so good that the fourth one, which was Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers, which came out last year, people were anticipating for a really long time. It was five years um, after his last album came out that this album came out. Um, and people were anticipating, you know, a lot from it. Like it was, again, his last one was the first non-classical or jazz album to win a Pulitzer Prize. Um, and so there's a lot of pressure on him to create something that was going to be like new and, you know, just as good as or maybe even better than everything he's created before. Um, and I think that that was really hard for him. And so what the album is about is really interesting it ends up being about that struggle for him um, and what that kind of brings up and how that kind of changes him. Like specifically, like he feels a lot of pressure um, with the idea that he's supposed to be like the savior of hip hop or the savior of the black community. There's this kind of like people think of him as, you know, as this kind of prophet. Um, And what he realizes is this, it's, you know, the ideal self versus the like real self sort of thing that it's like, that's not who he is. It's like this thing that he wants to be, but like he can't live up to this, um, you know, incredible, like he's not this kind of mythical being um, that all he is, is just Kendrick, Kendrick Lamar. Um, And that Kendrick Lamar is flawed and has like trauma that he's been hiding and stuff. Um, There's a really like interesting motif on the album where in between songs, it's called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. And in between some of the songs you hear tap dancing 
And what that is supposed to kind of represent is him kind of dancing around his issues. Like he finds ways to avoid them. Like he's, it's the kind of the non-acceptance where he's like finding avenues to just not have to deal with the, the, the problem of who he is and to be able to like think about himself in, in a more positive way. So he ends up like over the course of the album, it's talking about him actually ultimately breaking down and deciding to go to therapy um, where he starts to learn to accept himself and, and to like acknowledge the traumas that have built him up uh, or that have like created him and to realize that he can't be the savior. Um, and so all of this just kind of culminates on the last two songs of the album. The first one is called Mother Eye Sober. And it's this like really, really devastating song where he talks about his mother being abused when he was a child and how that, that has like haunted him. And he's wrestled with all of this guilt and shame about that and how that's come out in these different ways. He develops the sex addiction um, that he'd never wanted to talk about and like never really never acknowledged. Um, but then ultimately he's forced to acknowledge it. You know, he realizes that he's been like hurting his long-term partner the, who's the mother of his kids. And he's thinking about how this trauma is going to be passed down to his kids. Just like, and so all of that kind of breaks him and makes him think I, I really need to change. Like it's both how he's feeling. He's not feeling happy. He's feeling hurt. And he also knows how he's hurting the people around him. The like the chorus is actually the chorus is devastating. The chorus is I wish I was somebody, anybody but myself. Um, and so that's kind of the, like the state that he's in. And then what what he follows it up with is the final song, which is called Mirror. And the chorus is, again, this very simple chorus, just repeated, I choose me, I'm sorry. And it's this, like, kind of triumphant um, ending where he has, like, and, and the the song before, it's devastating, but it ends in this kind of, like, hopeful place. But at the end, he's like, I choose me, I'm sorry. Um, the last lines of the of that song I have, like, pulled up here, it says... I realize true love is not saving face, but unconditional. When will you let me go? I trust you'll find independence. If not, then all is forgiven. Sorry I didn't save the world, my friend. I was too busy building mine again. I choose me, I'm sorry. I choose me, I'm sorry, and, and so on and so on. And it's just like he gets to this place where he's like, where he's actually really comfortable and happy. Like the I'm sorry is like, I'm sorry that you don't, you know, if you don't understand it, it's not like, I'm sorry, like, I feel bad. It's actually like, it's it's a triumphant kind of, I'm sorry. It's like, I'm sorry, I've chosen myself. I've chosen that, like, I, I know I'm not the savior. That's like, I can recognize that now and I can see myself and be very happy with that person. And I hope that you can find the same thing. And I find that really, really cool because I think it really rep represents, like, the album itself too. Because I think the album is not, you know, his best album from a, like, kind of, technical or whatever standpoint but it is my favorite of his albums because I think kind of the point of it is that it's not his best album and the, like the point is that like there's this this ideal self that he's supposed to be like as an artist and then as you know considered by many to be the best um artist of his of his type that he rejects the idea that he has to be the ideal self and instead chooses the like real self like I choose me instead of I choose the savior of hip-hop um and that that's like you know he finds he finds peace because of that um which I just think is really really cool um and I think that you know just like looking at pictures of him and looking at videos of him or whatever I think he looks happier now he looks he looks well like it's like kind of in his in his eyes he looks healthier and so that's what I like that's that's my story that's what I really like I think about acceptance as a catalyst for change there 
Okay, so as promised, we talked to Quinn, got an update on what his life has been since van life, which he is now finished with. So we will round out this episode with his answers to that question and a few others. Um, it was definitely quite interesting, um, especially just the the um, time span between recording and actually like re-listening to it. Because uh, when we first recorded it, I was actually on the road living in my car, um, parked in the middle of nowhere recording that. And then listening to it, I'm in my house. And so listening back, it almost felt like I was listening to a different person speaking in a way. It, it, it opens me up to appreciating the season that I was in during that time. Because I don't think, you know, even I love traveling, I love exploring, but I don't think I'll ever explore and travel in that same way so I was like really appreciative of the opportunity that I had of like oh wow I was just out by myself in a car with a solo panel and a router and just kind of doing that so it was it was definitely a reflective moment looking back at that for sure why do you think you decided to stop van life at the time that you did because like, I know you, it was never meant to be permanent for you, but like, why did you decide that this was, you know, time to buy a house and right. become boring? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, funny enough, uh, I, I feel like a lot of things are just like, oh, it was a gradual progression. But that decision was actually a very specific moment that I made a very specific decision on to end van life and move in this direction. I believe I was in a... I forget. It's some restaurant, Polo Tropicano restaurant in Florida. I was in their parking lot and I had just hung up with my real estate agent looking at different houses and getting some more information. And I remember sitting there and I had two choices. I could either A, go fully into the van life life. And um, I was in an SUV at the time. And if I wanted to go that route, I would buy a larger uh, actual van build it out, make it like an actual full living quarter and really go that round, just travel the U.S. Or B, I can choose to come back home, reintegrate with my social circle, my church and everything like that, and kind of go that route and build up um, my standing at work and professionalism. And uh, there are a lot of factors that kind of factored into it, but after talking to my disciples, uh, my mentors, uh, other people who are, I, I allow to speak into my life because I don't want to be the only person making decisions. Um, I found that being by myself, isolated, had more of an impact than I initially could have considered. And me being an introvert, I love being my, by myself. Like, my perfect evening is being home by myself with my phone turned off and no one texting me. That's perfect for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but just being by myself for so many months, like completely isolated alone where like there was no one who I knew around me had more of an impact than I really kind of accounted for at the time. And so that was kind of the, the main catalyst for coming back home, uh, getting reintegrated and, kind of reshifting the way I want to travel going forward. So I'm curious, coming home, like reintegrating in community, what was that like? And do you feel like you relate to your community differently at all than before van life? I don't think I relate 
to them differently. Actually, you know what? I take that back. I do relate to them differently. And the way I'd relate to them differently is just a greater appreciation for human to human connection because literally being hundreds of miles away from anybody I knew, that kind of isolation really highlighted how much we as people, and not we as people, but me as a person, how much I need other people who know me to be around them. And so I think I was a lot more grateful and a lot more appreciative of the people that um, I came back to, whether they realized it or not, I definitely felt a, like gratitude towards them for, you know, being being in my life, I guess. So the principle of peacemaking that we took from your episode was acceptance is a catalyst for change. And in some ways, like it, it feels like you leaving your community, kind of like going out and doing this fan life was a way to like go live by myself because I feel like I am happier when I can be alone and when I can go and, you know, explore what I want to explore. Um, But then what you're saying is that in coming back home, you develop this new appreciation for your kind of the circumstances that you left that like the relationships that you have matter um, and are important and are valuable and, like, these people are valuable to you in ways that you didn't quite understand before leaving. I just think that's interesting. Like, it's like you, like, it's like a new sort of acceptance that you have of the people who are around you, which I think is cool. So, given the principle of peacemaking that we took, um, what we were curious to hear, and your answer could just be no, but, like, is there a different principle that you feel also came from this um, or that, that has gotten you thinking? Yeah. Um, acceptance as a catalyst for change, I definitely um, still agree with. But also, I think to even add on to that is that some things are the way that they are and don't necessarily need to change or that they shouldn't change. And so um, I feel like we, we, we all kind of have like this perfect image or perfect idea of our perfect life in our heads and we would love for our current life, our current environment, our current situation to change in some way to facilitate this new perfect vision that we have. But similar to the same way where someone may say, oh, I wish I could win the lottery. That's their perfect life. But the reality of actually winning the lottery would cause destruction in so many different areas. Um compared to the gain that they might have in one area. So I feel like a lot of the structures that we have in our life are uh, almost kind of uh, guide rails that we need, even though we don't necessarily realize them. And I've talked a little bit about it, but um, at least for me specifically, being around people and having a social circle, well, some of my friends annoy me sometimes when they text me on a Friday night when I need to not be texted (laughs) I realize now that that is something that I genuinely need not want but I need people to text me and actually want to get together with me like like as a human I absolutely need people to do that and so um yeah just realizing that some things are poised to be changed but other things in our life are the way that they are and we need them to be that way 
Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life? I've been feeling starstruck, seeing human love thrive in this really long dusk. Guess it's really our love, seven billion of us, and I read the headlines. Tell me, tell me, tell me what's a life? It's pot luck, surveillance, corn shuck the conscience, hot sauce, blood diamonds. Everybody pitching in forks red with silence. We already ate up that cone bread of kindness. Something in between, we got stories in our stories, no one's stories what it seems As we stumble, as we fall, we watch each other and we scream If our weaknesses are glory, it's more glory to be seen This has been the Peacemakers Podcast, produced and hosted by me, Obasi Shah, and my co-host, Michael O'Brien The intro and outro song, What's a Life, is by me and produced by Eerie Skies The interludes are produced by Gabe Gladstein of the pop duo Running On Everything If you liked this episode and want to reflect more, come visit our website at principlesofpeacemaking.org, where you can find more of our content and information on how to support us. Our guest today was Quinn Breedlove. Thanks, Quinn. And thank you for listening. Now go and make peace.